take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 7. The next few weeks are going to be jumbled up so that uh, there's no serious... I don't want to get back to Acts yet, is, is what I'm saying. There, there, there are going to be some uh, interjections. Uh, we'll have a guest preacher in a few weeks. Uh, there, there are other topics I'm going to be preaching on along. So uh, I didn't want to get back to Acts yet. So we're doing what we often do. We're going to go back and, and pick up a few psalms, songs for life. Uh, we are on Psalm number 7, that's the next one. Uh, over the next cor- the course of the next few weeks, we'll hit 7, 8, and 9. We're going to cover all three of those psalms. And, and the psalms, uh, uh, to, to sometimes to glean one sentence for a title on a sermon is not always easy. Uh, David or whoever is writing these psalms, depending on the psalm, sometimes hits a number of topics and it's, well, what's the, what's the main idea of this psalm? And I believe, uh, based on my study, that uh, this morning's psalm, the Lord judges, captures what David is trying, uh, for, uh, trying for us to understand, for the readers, the, the singers to understand. Remember, the psalms uh, is the hymn book of the Jewish people through the temple period. They sang these in worship in various, uh, at various times for various situations. And uh, though David wrote it, it may have, when he wrote it, it may have been something personal for him. It became a part of their standard hymnody. So we're looking at Psalm 7, the Lord judges. Uh, turn there if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, feel free to use one of the ones on the, in the pew rack in front of you. It will match exactly what you see on the screen this morning. Michael Morton is a name y'all might not recognize. If, if any of you are from Texas, maybe. Uh, I didn't recognize it, 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 having lived in Texas for 16 years and uh, being there when some of this uh, happened. I didn't know his name. That's him uh, there in probably around 2011. Michael Morton was convicted of murdering his wife in, in Texas uh, in 1987. Convicted. Now, there was a mountain of evidence that he was innocent. Uh, if you go to, uh, there's a website called The Innocence Project. Um, they, this particular group of lawyers had intentionally retry cases where it's pretty clear some issues in the, in the, in the process the first time uh, uh, were, were there, some uh, negligence or something like that. Uh, Etta and I, she's, she's actually Etta's friend more than mine, just because they went to college together. Uh, uh, lady who has a master's degree in music, right, decided three or four years ago to go back and get her law degree. And she graduates in the month next week, something like that. That's right, it's May, isn't it? Uh, nearly. Uh, and with, with her law degree, her, her focus, what she wants to do now with this new career she started, is work on cases where the verdict is doubtful, uh, where there's a pretty clear case of innocence, and they can go back to fix that. So that's who I got this case from. I asked her, I texted her, hey, I, need, I want a case where this ha- something like this happened. The most egregious, this is what I asked her, the most egregious example of a wrongful conviction being overturned. And she, seconds later, Michael Morton, looked him up, here he is. There was a mountain of evidence that he was innocent. Um, it, it, the, the sole 
uh, prosecutorial evidence was a note that he had left on the bathroom mirror telling his wife, I'm upset about something that happened the night before. I love you. As he went off to work early in the morning. Later on that day, they found her uh, murdered in her bed. So uh, there was even the three-year-old son who lived there testified as best a three-year-old can, that it was not daddy who did it. It was a monster. And, but the man was convicted anyway. He spent 24 years in prison. There was a bloody uh, a bandana that was found about 100 yards from the house that, go read it. I won't go into all the details. In 2011, he was exonerated using DNA, DNA evidence from that bloody bandana. It had never been tested. It had never, uh, there was just... Uh, mistake after mistake after mistake made in this case and eventually in fact the prosecutor was convicted of criminal contempt and disbarred he was actually a judge in 2011 once this case was overturned and they saw how much evidence he withheld did not show to the defense attorneys uh, then then he was actually prosecuted uh, convicted went to jail and was disbarred that's a happy ending, right? Ish. I mean, he's finally free. And, and uh, the guy is, is doing well from, from what I read. But it was a false. It wasn't even really an accusation. Nobody accused him of doing it except the prosecutor. But yet it was a false accusation. It was a, an accusation that was not true. Psalm 7 uh, that we're going to look at today is David's lament of false accusation. It is him saying, him crying out to God in the midst of a, a, a false accusation uh, that, that he is innocent. And in this psalm, or in this situation, uh, David has been unjustly accused of a treacherous act. Now, it's, it, this possibly uh, originated in, uh, from Saul's family. Uh, it could have gone back to when Saul was still alive and David was uh, uh, serving in the court or in the area and it was a false accusation that came from some of Saul's family because it refers to uh, a Benjaminite, a family of Benjamin, which Saul was. Uh, it could have been that this came from when Absalom was rebelling against David. So much later on in his life, during this rebellion, when uh, Absalom was rebelling and a, a gentleman by the name of Ahithophel, uh, it's easy for you to say, Ahithophel was stirring up trouble against uh, David uh, while he supported Absalom. It doesn't matter really when, but we just get an idea, we understand that, that David was in a situation where major political, major family issues were, were coming against him, and he was being uh, accused falsely. And then later on, this psalm was used long after David uh, wrote. It was used in worship to ask for protection. And then even later on, it was used in uh, worship as a part of the Feast of Purim. Uh, Queen Esther, the, the Feast of Purim celebrates what Esther did and, and all that political subterfuge that was going on, all the lying and all the, 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 the backbiting and, and things that Haman were doing, this psalm became a, a time of worship for the people to celebrate the fact that the unjustly accused were watched over by the Lord. 
And so that brings us to Psalm 7 to see what it says to us this morning. So now we have a little background. We, we get into it. It says, Psalm 7, a Shigeon of David, it's a psalm, okay, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Yahweh, my God, I seek refuge in you. Save me from all my pursuers and rescue me, or they will tear me like a lion, ripping me apart with no one to rescue me. Yahweh, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice on my hands, if I have done harm to one at peace with me or have plundered my adversary without cause, may an enemy pursue and overtake me. May he trample me to the ground and leave my honor in the dust. Rise up, Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my adversaries. Awake for me. You have ordained a judgment. Let the assembly of peoples gather around you. Take your seat on high over it. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity. Let the evil of the wicked ones, uh, the, the wicked, come to an end, but establish the righteous. The one who examines the thoughts and emotions is a righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. If anyone does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has struck and made it ready. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He tips his arrows with fire. See, the wicked one is pregnant with evil, conceives trouble, and gives birth to deceit. He dug a pit and hollowed it out, but fell into the hole he had made. His trouble comes back on his head, and his violence falls on the top of his head. I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of Yahweh the Most High. As David writes this psalm, this, this song of lament, but also of worship and of praise, he, he divided it into two main sections. Uh, in the first section, verses 1 through 10, David sets forth his case. This is what's going on. This is who I really am. This is the truth of the situation. In the second section, he sets forth God's righteousness and the fate of the wicked, verses 11 through 17. And that's the way we're going to address these two sections today. Uh, we want to approach Scripture the way Scripture approaches us, and we see those two sections. So first we're going to look at David's case in verses 1 through 10. Now there are a number of things here as he moves through his case. It's, it's very much a trial. That's one of the reasons I wanted to use an example of a courtroom with Michael Morton. This is very much David calling for a trial to be had. Call, and, and we'll see actually that very verbiage here in just a second. But he makes this case in verses 1 through 10 by beginning by saying, Yahweh, my God, save me. Lord, my God, save me. I seek refuge in you. Save me from all my pursuers and rescue me. My, my pursuers here, he's, he's using not only language of a courtroom that he's going to get into in a minute, he also uses a lot of language of, of war. And for him, in his political situation especially, and especially if it is Ahithophel that he's talking about during the re rebellion of Absalom, he, he was literally pursued. But in this case, it's, it's a metaphor for these false charges. They are pursuing me with their words. They're not really, at this point, coming after me to kill me, though that was Absalom's goal, uh, was to take over the throne. That was not his point here. It, he is getting more to the psychological, the emotional uh, damage that this is doing, the, the relationship 
uh, that he will have or not have with the people he is leading because of the lies of Ahithophel and Absalom. Or, if it wasn't Ahithophel during the rebellion of Absalom, going back then to Saul when he was king and his family stirring up trouble against David because David was the anointed king to come. But these opponents are not seeking to kill him, though that's the language he uses. And then very graphic language in verse 2, they will tear me like a lion, ripping me apart with no one to rescue me. Uh, that verse 2, he's, he's just talking about the violence of their, wor- their words, their true goal, how, how uh, ignoble their, their uh, purpose is here. They don't care who it hurts or how or when as long as David's torn down just doesn't matter. And they seek to destroy his name. And if he, you know, if he dies in the process, great. If he's not king, well, that's awesome too. But we just want to destroy his name. So David comes to God and says, Yahweh, my God, save me. And we get this impression again, as we've gotten in a couple of other psalms as we've gone through it, that he is making this request not out of the blue, like, God's going to say, wait, who's David? David who? David of, David of Israel. Oh, Israel, that David. No, no, it's not that sort of thing. This is a request based on a prior relationship. Hebrew grammar and, and, and tenses are difficult. So one translator will say in verse 1, Lord my God, I seek refuge from, me, uh, from you. Save me from all my pursuers and rescue me. Another translator says that it should be, Lord my God, I seek refuge in you. You have saved me from all my pursuers, and you have rescued me. And if we take the past tense version of that, we see that David is resting on what God has done for him in the past. David knows who his God is. David knows that his God has been there for him. David knows that God has rescued and saved in the past, and God does not change. So David can count on God now. So in this counting on God, Lord my God, save me, he he gives his reasons why in verses 3 through 5, why God should save him. He says, Yahweh my God, he begins the, those, these two phrases the same way, Lord my God, Yahweh my God, covenant name, my personal God, my, my relationship is secure, Yahweh my God, you are my Lord, you are interested in me, you know my name. If David had had that song, he'd have sung it right here. Yahweh my God, I'm innocent. I've not done these things. As a matter of fact, he, he, he lays it out. If I have done this, if there is injustice on my hands, if I have done harm, if I have plundered, he says, then I deserve it. Verse 5. He understands that. He understands that if I have done these things I am being accused of, I deserve whatever talk that they are stirring up. I deserve whatever punishment comes from what's going on. But then he says, if I've done these things, and this sort of if is the, gives the impression that the answer is, but I didn't. If I did these things, and what are these things? He doesn't lay it out clearly, but we get an idea of what he's being accused of uh, and what he says he's innocent of. First, he says, if I have done this, if these accusations are true, 
just generally, if what they are saying is true, number one, if there is injustice in my hands and, and, and the, the evil in my hands, that's a common Old Testament phrase uh, for, for doing injustice, doing evil, uh, but more specifically for David and this this, the theme here, the, the uh, thing he's being accused of, this is poor character. This isn't per specific actions necessarily, but this is, he's being accused of being something less than doing something, but his being then an accusation, or, or if number three leads us to what he's being accused of doing, if he hurt an ally. We get the idea here that he's talking about a peace treaty that he may have had, or, in, in fact, as they dig deeper, what they think he, it meant was that he had a treaty with person A, and person A had a treaty with person B, and therefore, David has a treaty with person B. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That's kind of what we're looking at here. If you're my friend, then you're my friend's friend, is what they're saying. And he's being accused of not being the friend's friend. Amazing how talk can stir up some things. So he's accused of hurting the ally, and he says, I did not. And then, uh, or have plundered my adversary without cause. Uh, that word plundered actually can also mean rescue. So we have two different ideas here, but they both talk, uh, speak to David's possibly, at least according to the accuser, David's poor character. Either he uh, plundered an enemy without cause, he went after somebody uh, out of bounds, basically. Uh, there was a time to go after the enemy, but then things had been settled, things were over, and David went back, and that could be what he's getting at. But in the context, it seems like it's a better idea to say rescuing an enemy. And, and now what we have is a little closer to the I insulted the friend of my friend. Stay with me. David had a treaty with person A. Person A had a treaty with person B. Therefore, David has a treaty with person B. But person B wanted to whoop up on person C. And David was nice to person C. So therefore, David broke the treaty. Because if your, friend, if your friend is my friend, well, then your enemy is also my enemy. And David's accused here, listen to the accusation. If, if, if our translation is correct and if our understanding is correct, David is being accused of being nice to somebody. If that don't sound like the way the world works sometimes, how dare you be nice to that person I don't like? Well, that's, that's, that's where it looks like David's going. But what he's saying is not, I was never nice to him. That would be a, an odd uh, defense. I, I, was, I, was, I was mean to him as anybody else. No, he's saying, I never broke our treaty. I never was unfaithful to you. And he says, he goes on, now that we've got an idea of, of what he's talking about in this kind of esoteric little political uh, playground that's going on here. He says, if I did, though, let these things happen to me. Let me be pursued. Now, in verse 1, he said, you have saved me, or he said, save me from my pursuers. You have saved me, do it again. Or this time, save me from my pursuers. And then in verse 5, he says, but if I did it, 
ignore my prayer. Let me be pursued. Let me be pursued by my enemies. Let them not just pursue me, but overtake me. When they overtake me, may they trample me to the ground. That doesn't sound fun. And leave my honor in the dust. And what David is saying here, he's not just talking about his personal honor, though it appears that that is exactly what is being attacked here, his personal honor. He's saying, let that be destroyed, which it would be if I did these things that I'm being accused of anyway. But more importantly, he is talking about his spiritual honor. May I be cut off from the Lord in this, even. Not just from people. Ultimately, cut off from God. He is so confident in his innocence that he can say, Lord, if I have done these things, cut me off from you. Because if my integrity and honor is so poor, then I shouldn't be around you either. So in verses 6 through 10, as he makes this case now in verses 1 through 5, he asks for a trial in verses 6 through 10. Rise up, Lord. Lift yourself up. Uh, Awake. Ordain a judgment in verse 6. These are all imperatives that David is using to tell God what to do. And that's an interesting situation and David does it quite a lot and let's go back to the relationship that they have that David can cry out to the Lord to do something on his behalf and what we see here is not God being immobile and unable and unconcerned and unaware David is not having to tell him to rise and lift and awake and ordain because God won't but uh, David is anxious about this and there is no doubt no doubt in my mind that God often waits to hear us cry to him before he acts we don't make God do anything we don't cause God to do anything we don't surprise God and we don't give him ideas he didn't have but in his economy God chooses in his sovereignty to wait to act the very way he had always intended to act until we ask him to act in that way. So don't tell me your prayers don't matter. Don't tell me prayers don't affect God. They do. You don't control God, but God responds to our prayer. It sounds like if A is true and A is not true, then something's wrong. But I'm telling you, God is beyond our logic. So pray. Do not not pray because, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. No, it could be that in God's economy, in this situation, in this, uh, for this purpose, he's waiting on you to pray to him and to ask him. Or even in the case of David, to cry out an imperative statement. God, rise, lift, awake, ordain. In verse 7, he says, get up, Lord, get up. Let the assembly of peoples gather around you. Take your seat on high over it. David is acknowledging God's sovereignty. He is acknowledging God's power. So he's not thinking, i got to wake God up so he'll do this. He knows exactly who God is. And he wants God to be judge of this matter and the people that are involved. So God, take your seat. Get where you need to be. Be the God I know that you are. Let's continue this relationship that I know that we have. And he says in verse 8, The Lord judges the peoples. So vindicate me, Lord, 
according to my righteousness and my integrity. Now, it is a dumb, dumb statement. Dumb statement. To tell God, God, I want you to judge me. And by the way, I'm innocent. If you know you're not innocent. I, 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 it, it's one thing when we, when we lie to a lawyer, a judge, a person, and we're thinking, ain't no way they're going to find this out. <laughs> I got this. Covered this one up great. Invariably, it seems, though, I mean, it's, it's a rare occasion where it isn't found out. But to go to the one who David has already admitted has all this power, has all this ability, is the high judge, judges people, knows everything about them by implication here, for him to say, Lord, I'm innocent, when he knew he wasn't innocent. And David is not saying here in verse 8, according to my righteousness and my integrity, that he's perfect. It's not the stand he's taken. He's not saying, Lord, you know I've never done anything wrong in my life. <laughs> you know, you suspect the lightning at that point if that's what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. He's not standing before God saying, I'm absolutely perfect. He is saying, God, in this situation, because, uh, 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 for this accusation, Lord, you know I have not done what I have been told that I've done. And he can make that statement with a clear conscience and in all honesty. And then he goes on to talk about the Lord's ability to judge. Verse 9, he tells, says that God's decision is perfect. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. The one who examines the thoughts and emotions is a righteous God. God's decisions are perfect. When God declares, when, when his gavel raps on the, uh, uh, the table, then it, it's done. And, and you don't have to question, well, get, did God make the right decision there? Yes, God absolutely made the right decision because his decision is perfect. And if God makes the decision, if God leads a direction, then in verse 10, David says, My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. We know that God always decides for the right. That's what, maybe it's this connection. That's what David can be assured of. Lord, you know my innocence. You know the situation. So if you decide in this situation, I can come to you with, with, with full integrity saying I did not do this. So if you decide in this situation, I know I'm free and clear. I know that you will always make a perfect decision that decides for the right. And then David leads into who God is. Verses 11 through 17, the second section of his psalm. And he talks about the, God, the righteousness of God and the fate of the wicked. Those two uh, aspects are inextricably related. God is righteous, the wicked will suffer. The existence of the righteous God makes possible the prayer for deliverance from the wicked. David knows I can pray to God for deliverance from the wicked because he is righteous. And he will always judge the wicked. But the existence of the righteous God makes certain the judgment of the wicked. I can go to the Lord in prayer and he will decide rightly. I can take this to the Lord in my innocence and he will judge those who make these accusations. Because verses 11 through 13, 
the Lord God is a righteous judge. If God is a righteous judge, verse 11, God is a righteous judge, therefore he is. If God is a righteous judge, that necessarily means he will punish evil. God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. If anyone does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has strung his bow and made it ready. He has his deadly weapons, the tips of his arrows, with fire. Verses 12b through 13 show us that the judgment is ready. God stands ready to judge the wicked. God stands ready to judge the evil one. God is righteous. He shows his wrath every day. We see it in life. We see it in scripture. And God is ready. To do it, we have a picture. Is this still me? Okay. We have a picture here of of a God we don't want to have a picture of. We have the, the, the joking picture that we'll, we'll tell people, preachers will tell people, God's not just standing up there waiting to, to zap you when you do something wrong. And yet, here we have in Scripture an image of God standing up there waiting to zap you when you do something wrong. He will sharpen his sword. And you, and you, you see him just... Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be guessing a big sword, so it's a wedding stone. He strung his bow. He's made it ready, so he's... He's ready. He's got it. He's prepared his deadly weapons. I kind of... Knives stuck in the sides. You know, he's sheathed them. He's ready. So sword on his back. He's got his bow ready. And he tips... His arrows with fire. So, you know, if, if you watch any, you know, medieval movies, TV shows, whatever, and, and they're fighting on the castle wall, and they've got their little fire going, they've got the arrows, and, and you just see them lighting him. See them lighting it. Lighting it. He's just, he's ready. He is ready. He is up there, and he is ready to take out those people who are evil. He's ready, and we're like, here, get them, God. Uh-oh. Verse 12a, if anyone does not repent, gosh, that ruins that image. God is very prepared to judge. Judgment is coming on the evil and the wicked. It is going to happen. But that judgment is delayed by the opportunity for repentance always. That stinks for us that think we're innocent. That is great for us, because we're not. So all that, all that, it's not quite like this, okay, but it's the way my brain works. Y'all know I have littles, and I have bigs. The bigs aren't as affected by this anymore. The littles still are. Uh, if they're not cooperative, we'll say, I can go to the cabinet, the, the china cabinet in the dining room, and get the, uh, let's use some biblical terminology here, the weapon of choice. Huh? It's just a spoon. But they know what the spoon's for. 
I got to just twirl it a little bit. I was do I was I, I get that a lot I was I was and you know they, they want to keep particular portions of their anatomy away from my direction they're not going to turn around and walk away they're going back out of the room they know the consequence they know what's coming they know what they're now supposed to be doing they know how they were well let's use some you know stronger words than necessary evil or unrighteous they know that the punishment is there it's the idea of the punishment that leads to repentance i think that's some of what we're seeing here with god the idea of the punishment leads to repentance the idea of the punishment is grace and mercy grace and mercy are offered to the repentant. So yes, the judgment is secure. Uh, John 3.17 tells us that God, Jesus is not coming to the world to condemn the world. The world is actually already condemned by our own actions. We're already going to hell. The punishment is secure. The judgment is secure. But Jesus is waiting for us to repent. Jesus is a righteous judge. God is a righteous judge. And there's this hesitation if anyone does not repent, then things will happen. And we pray that they do. Because we see in verses 14 through 16 the extent of the wickedness of the people. Uh, see the wicked one is pregnant with evil. It, he's, he's interestingly using a, a pregnancy metaphor for a man. I mean, that's, and, and the, the, the metaphor here, uh, he's... He's pregnant with evil, he conceives trouble, and he gives birth to deceit. You get the whole picture there. But the, the, the metaphor here is the same sort of joy that you would have in a family for a literal birth of a baby. Oh, I'm so excited. I can't wait till this baby is born. Oh, it's going to be so cute. It's going to be so wonderful. The image that David is giving us here of the extent of the wickedness is this, of this person is, oh, I can't wait until this evil is born. It is going to be so wonderful when there is uh, deceit and there is, what's the other word? Uh, uh, trouble. Oh, it's gonna be, I'm so excited when I'm going to get the opportunity to show this evil to the world. Isn't it great evil? That is the extent of the wickedness of people. So when Jesus says, uh, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it, the world is actually already condemned, we get that. We understand that sort of evil, that our condemnation is secure, that the sharpened sword and the strung bow and the prepared weapons and the fire-tipped arrows, they are all just a result of who we are as evil, lost people. But the judgment is secure. He dug a pit and hollowed it out. A pit is always a trap. This isn't a well. It wasn't a mistake. This is a, a trap to catch people. But he fell into the hole he had made. His trouble comes back on his own head. His own violence comes down on top of his head. God's judgment is often for one to fall in his own wickedness. Notice that God did not use the sharpened sword, the strung bow, the prepared weapons, or the fire-tipped arrows to judge the evil. He did not have to, or does not have to, in this situation. It falls back on them. It, this is not karma. We don't want to use that word. This is divinely ordered retribution. This is what God does. And we can see it, I think, if we're 
looking for it in our lives pretty often. And then verse 17, this concern, this worry, uh, verses 1 through 10, here's my case. Verses 11 through 16, this is uh, who God is and who the wicked are. David, in verse 17, his concern turns to praise. Out of all this, he says, I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of the Lord Most High. His concern turns to praise. I no longer have to be worried about the judgment or the false accusation because of who my God is. David is confident. He's more confident in who his God is than he is even in his own innocence, and he is very confident in his innocence. This gentleman's name is Timothy Brian Cole. He was convicted of, of rape uh, in 1985, I think in Lubbock, around Texas Tech. In 2009, he was exonerated by DNA. It wasn't him. There was uh, incontrovertible evidence that it was not him that did it. Uh, some of the evidence at the time was the, the person who was accused, or the person who did it, was, known, was a chain smoker. Uh, that was just one of the, the facts that the uh, victim knew about the person based on smell, that sort of thing. Uh, Timothy Brian Cole was a bad asthmatic. Uh, he, he couldn't have smoked. It just wouldn't have worked for him. So he was exonerated by... Uh, DNA in 2009. How many years later is that? Somebody do that quick math for me. Is that 24 years? 24 years later, he was exonerated by DNA. He died in prison in 1999 of an asthma attack. Ten years before he was exonerated. He spent 14 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. False accusation. And never got to see his name cleared. He, he received a full pardon from, I think it was Rick Perry in 2010. I can't remember when the governor, who the governor was at that time. I think it was. Timothy Brian Cole didn't get a happy ending. David, if we look at the scripture, did not get a happy ending, at least not as, we, as far as we can tell. David is confident about what God does and what God can do and his power and his righteousness and that trouble does fall back on the heads of those who cause it, etc., etc. But nowhere do we see in the psalm, and even if we look back at some of the situations this could have involved, nowhere do we see ultimate conclusion or closure to the situation. Justice, my folks, justice may or may not come. You may not get exoneration. They may continue to lie about you, say things that aren't true, make false accusations. The situation you're in may not improve. You might die in prison and never see the day that your name is cleared. But what we do is we follow the example of David here. Our integrity verses 3 through 5, and our praise, verse 17, must be maintained in spite of injustice. You want your takeaway? There it is. No matter what is happening in your life, no matter who is doing what to you, you cannot get on their level, you cannot sacrifice your integrity for the sake 
of your name. Whose name is great? Your great name. We sang the song. Your name is known by him, but his name is the name that needs to be protected. And integrity and in praise, uh, integrity and praise lifts his name. Justice might lift his name, but it might not. And so we have to work for integrity and praise in the midst of injustice. And it is very true and it is very real that it is the brokenness of this life that makes that statement nearly impossible. Michael, in this world, you want me to maintain integrity? Do you know what they're saying? Do you know what they're doing? I might and I might not, but yes, we as believers must maintain our integrity even in the midst of a broken life, and it was not God's design. False accusation and injustice were never God's plan. It was never God's plan for Michael Morton to be falsely accused. It was never God's plan for Timothy Bryan Cole to be falsely accused, but that is the brokenness of this world. See, God's design was for every area of our lives to actually be perfect. Our families, our marriages, our money, our sex life, our work life. Life was designed to be perfect. God designed us to be in a relationship with him. But we've all departed from that design. David was just living out the results of a fallen world. Michael Morton, Timothy Brian Cole were just living out the results of a fallen world. We live out the results of a fallen world. And we depart from that design. does not mean that they caused what happened to them, but brokenness in this world is caused by sin. That's what the Bible calls it, departing from God's design. And we're born with a sinful nature. So sin comes naturally to me, and it comes naturally to you, and it came naturally to the prosecutor that falsely accused Michael Morton. It came naturally to the person who falsely accused David. And there's nobody who gets it right all the time. We sin and we fall short of God's perfect design. And that sin leaves us in brokenness. And that brokenness is easy for us to understand. It feels a lot like what David was talking about here. It feels a lot like broken relationships. And it feels like addiction and depression and discouragement and guilt and, and, and shame and, and injustice. And false accusations, and we want out of the brokenness, so we, we're going to fix it ourselves. We, we've got squiggly lines that are going to get us out of it, and we're going to medicate it ourselves, and we're going to self-help it ourselves, and we're going to numb it ourselves, and we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and hope that we somehow, some way, our good will outweigh our bad, and all of those ways just lead back to more brokenness. More and more. We live a broken life, and it feels like a bad thing. It, it feels like when David was in the midst of that, that was a bad thing. God, rise up, do something, Lord. Do you not know what kind of situation I am in? But in fact, that brokenness, that situation was a good thing because it got his attention, David's, turned to God. When we feel broken on the inside and everything's all messed up and we know something needs to change, it's that brokenness that gets us ready to try God's solution. And God's solution is the gospel. And we repent and we believe that gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus 
died according to scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day, he was raised again according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. He lived a perfect life. He took my sin and your sin on the cross. He took the death he, we deserve, and he was raised to life again, proving who he, he is, who he says he is, and that he can do what he says he can do. Jesus came to forgive our sins, and when we repent and believe in him, we are saved. He gives us the Spirit who helps us then recover and pursue God's design. We get to go back somewhat to what God wanted us to do. And we're still sinners. We still will fail at it. But we are closer to it. And then we get sent out to a broken world that says, it's not fair. And we get to say, I know it's not fair. But let me tell you what God did to fix the brokenness in your life this morning. Maybe you need to fix the brokenness in your life. Maybe it's false accusation. Maybe it's something else that has made you painfully aware of that brokenness that you have right now. But you need to get that fixed. The gospel is the way. I'll be down here in a few minutes. Tom will be over here to my right. We can pray with you. We can talk to you about that. Just believing, just trusting the gospel. Would you do that today? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that in the midst of a condemned, broken, and sinful world, Lord, you provide the gospel. You provide a healing to our brokenness. And Lord, it is there within reach of our belief. Lord, use this time to reach those this morning who have not trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're struggling with the brokenness. They're, they, they, they don't think they can fix it. And they are so, so right. Through the blood of Jesus, you can. God, work on us this morning as we come to this time of response. May we change because of you, change because of your word, and leave here different than how we came in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's stand and sing. Maybe you have a decision to make this morning. You want to bring it to the altar, make an altar out of this stage. Maybe you'd like to pray with me or Tom. I don't know what your decision is. Accept Christ, join the church, make some changes, whatever it is, as we sing as we pray, you do business with God this morning.